me a little hard to preach this morning. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and get out your Bibles if you've got your Bible. Uh, we're going to look at uh, John 17 again this week. Um, last week we began a series uh, called The Politics of Jesus, and uh, we looked at a particular passage uh, in John 17, and we're going to continue on in that passage uh, this morning. And kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, as we think about the politics of Jesus, I just kind of want to, uh, full disclosure here this morning, uh, if you came to church this morning, uh, hoping that I might, uh, or the church might give you some advice about the upcoming election or uh, validation about your particular candidate, uh, just you're probably going to leave disappointed this morning. Uh, that's not what we're going to talk about as it relates to the politics of Jesus. What I'm trying to do is to set a little bit of context for us to help all of us understand uh, that Jesus understood and understands what it's like to live in a great pressure cooker of uh, all the forces, all the powers that are going on in the world uh, and in the heavenly realms. So we're in John 17. Uh, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that continues to speak to us, this timeless word that continues to encourage us, challenge us, invite us to see the world in a whole new way. God, we pray that as we continue on in your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit might continue to dwell among us, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's been uh, uh, quite a week yet again, and uh, I was reminded uh, that just this weekend, of course, we have a full moon, we've got uh, Halloween, uh, we've got uh, time clock changes, and uh, just before the election, it just continues to build and grow, and it's just like, my goodness, um, could there be one more thing uh, going on in the world uh, and in our lives? came across an article this week uh, from Forbes magazine, and it said that Americans this year are expected to spend almost $9 billion uh, on Halloween. And I just get a little bit intrigued. I know I kind of shake my head too. What in the world is going on with Halloween? But it's only after Christmas. Uh, it's the second most uh, the, uh, Americans just kind of open up their wallets and spend lots and lots of money. And, and that breaks down to $86.26 for every man, woman, and child we spend on costumes and candy and decorations. And uh, we, of course, uh, celebrate this and have celebrated uh, Halloween for a good long time. And, and I'm a little bit perplexed about Halloween, I just have to admit. But I wonder if Americans don't have a little bit of fascination with Halloween because Americans aren't always sure what to do with our fears, those things that scare us, those things that uh, jump out in the night and go boo uh, at us. And, and we're just not really sure what to do. And so once a year, we kind of poke fun at our fears and uh, just kind of confront them head on and uh, kind of have a little bit of fun with Halloween. And, um, you know, fear is a really interesting thing. And a lot of fear, frankly, is healthy fear. Healthy fear helps us to continue on uh, as individuals. 
uh, and to, to thrive and, and do really good things. But of course, then there's all these unhealthy fears that we have in our lives. These, these things that, that come at us, that we react to, that we respond to irrationally. We kind of even lose our minds over uh, particular different things. And, and of course, we call these things phobias. And I thought we might all need a little bit of levity this weekend, uh, given all that's going on in the world. And so I went online to just find out, well, what are people, you know, what are some phobias, those things that people have irrational fears for? And I thought, well, I'll just ask the Faith Lutheran congregation uh, to see if any of you have some of these phobias. So this is the part of the sermon that's interactive. And I ask you to raise your hand. And I know we're all sick and tired of polls, but I thought we'd take a poll this morning around some of our phobias. And so this is uh, a particular list uh, about phobias. That it's called the 10 most common phobias that Americans have. So number 10 on the list is phobia of holes, phobia of holes. And that include little tiny things like sponges or um, when you look at food and there's like Swiss cheese or something like that. Or if you see like little coral and there's holes. Anybody have any phobia of holes in the room? And if you like see a cave, does that kind of creep anybody out? Okay. Apparently we're all super healthy in this room. That's awesome. Uh, number nine, uh, phobia, the fear of flying. Anybody have a fear of flying? Nobody's going to, this is the participation part of the sermon. It's okay. I've sat on planes before and people start kind of hyperventilating a little bit. Nobody, flying doesn't stress anybody out here. Okay. Um, number eight, uh, uh, the fear of germs. Come on. Everybody's got a little bit of fear of, nobody's got, oh, come on. I mean, hopefully we're all getting a little bit more better while washing our hands. But do you ever just like see somebody who like just picks something up off the floor and just like licks it or is that just gross anybody out? Just kind of like, ah, nobody. Okay, a little bit. All right, we're getting there. Okay, no, next one. The fear of uh, small spaces. Any claustrophobia? Okay, yep, I got that one. Yep, I cannot stand small spaces. Thunder and lightning. Anybody have an irrational fear of thunder and lightning? That you just think you are going to get struck by thunder and lightning? A couple years ago, uh, the fear of thunder and lightning struck my dog and chewed up my washing machine. It cost me $300 because my dog was afraid of the thunder and lightning. I don't get it, but uh, okay. Next one. Fear of dogs is actually number five on the list. Anybody have a fear of dogs? Okay. Nobody? Oh, come on. You guys aren't part. Either you're lying or you're just not going to participate. Fear of open or crowded spaces. Come on. Come on. Anybody, any, anybody hate going to the mall or Disney or any of those places? Just too, Okay, see, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Just too many people, right? Kind of creeps you out, okay? Uh, fear of heights, okay? More fear of heights, okay? Um, uh, number two is number one on my list, uh, fear of snakes. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. I can just see like a little garter snake, and it's just like, oh, you know, and, and they're like, it's perfectly harmless, you know, and I'm like, no, it's not. Get it away from me all day long. And the number one phobia that Americans have is fear of spiders, fear of spiders. Yeah, and I, I, don't, got, I don't have that one at all. So when we have spiders at my house, 
uh, everybody else has got that fear, and so I end up on spider duty, which doesn't bother me at all. But, you know, phobias are these irrational fears, these things that just, we, we, we experience them, and I could give you statistics all day long about um, things that would be like, oh, it's not so bad, and you'd be like, I don't care. I, that just gives me the heebie-jeebies. That grosses me out. I do not want to deal uh, with um, whatever that uh, phobia, that irrational uh, fear is. You know, I think it might not be a coincidence that Halloween, the day where we kind of lift up fears, is so close to our election day. Right? Because politicians know how to raise money using fear. Right? The Republicans are trying to take away your right to vote. Ah! The Democrats are trying to take away your guns. Ah! The president, if he gets reelected, the world is going to end. Ah! If a socialist Democrat gets elected, it's going to be the end of the world. Ah! For $25, you can send it in and we'll help you defeat your fears. Right? I mean, fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. And politicians know this. And so they come at us over and over and over with all these fears to get to our senses, to freak us out, to make us lose our minds. And if we're not careful, we can get sucked into all the fear that's being peddled by our politicians today. It's so easy to get sucked into the vortex of fear and things are going to be horrible. And so I want to ask us this morning, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? I think in so many ways, I think we're afraid of loss. We're afraid of losing our future for our children. We're afraid of what the rights that might get taken away from us. We're afraid of what we don't really know is going to happen, but it could actually happen. We're afraid of so much unknown. We're afraid of so much loss in our lives. And we don't know if it's going to happen or not. But I think in many ways that's at the root of this political fear that's going on. And so the pressure cooker of fear continues to build in our society. You know, I'm reminded that if we're experiencing a lot of kind of stress in our lives, kind of that, that pressure cooker of the political season going on, that Jesus fully understood what it's like to live in a world filled with a pressure cooker of politics and tension and stress. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he grew up in a political system, the political system of Rome. And Rome was a very powerful uh, nation, a very powerful empire. And the thing about Rome is there were no elections. Nobody got to vote. The Caesar just decided what was going to happen, and they were going to stay in power until they were going to die. And even more than uh, the, the, the Israelites having uh, no power to vote is they had really high taxes, and so you've got no power, you've got really high taxes, and then to boot, you've got the, the political whims of the Caesars in Rome. 
And if they felt like doing something, there was no Congress, there was no legislature. They just did it and said, I think I'm going to do that. Remember how the, the, the Christmas story begins? In those days, Caesar Augustus said, I think I'm going to take a census. And he didn't run it by anybody. And, he, and then he said to all the subjects, okay, now everybody, we're going to just do this. That's how things went. And if you went against the powers of Rome, it never ended well. And so Jesus lived in this pressure cooker of a political world. For all practical purpose, Jesus and God's people, the Israelites, they were slave to Rome, this overwhelmingly powerful nation that no one dared to defy. And then when Jesus stepped onto the stage of three years of public ministry, he not only had the powers of Rome to deal with, but then he also had to deal with the powers of the temple, of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders already felt threatened by the power of Rome. And so they tried to grab and hold on to whatever power they could muster up in the temple. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and for three years, he goes toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, and he never backs down. Jesus is never afraid to speak truth to power. And so he's got these two worlds of power swirling, the power of Rome and the religious power, the power of the temple. And so Jesus lives in this pressure cooker. And if, you, if you've got one of those instant pots, you know, it's got little dials, di- different settings. You just keep turning it up and turning it up and turning it up. And then the last week of Jesus' life, the pressure cooker gets turned up all the way. Because at this point in time, Jesus has been just kind of dealing with the religious leaders and not so much with the, the, the Roman leaders, the political leaders. But the last week of his life, Jesus comes into to Jerusalem and he says, guys, let's talk. And things got really, really tense. And over the last week of Jesus' life, the political pressure, the religious pressure, it was just screaming. It was on absolute high. And so Jesus goes to his heavenly father and prays a prayer when the tension, when the political tension couldn't have been any higher. And he prays this prayer that historians and theologians call the high priestly prayer. It's where Jesus goes to God and says, God, it is tense. It's really intense here. Let's talk. And if you were here last Sunday, we talked a little bit about the first part of um, maybe some strategies for how um, we might learn from Jesus' prayer. And the three strategies we lifted up last week were be humble in our approach when things get intense. Number two, seek the scriptures for guidance. And then number three, practice loving everyone always even when they disagree with you, especially when they disagree with you. I think those are some pretty good strategies that we pulled out of Jesus' prayer last week. So John 17, we're going to pick up with verse 12 here uh, this morning. Jesus continues uh, in his prayer. Jesus says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been uh, lost on the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
I think it's interesting that as Jesus now, he's, he's praying for us, for the disciples, for those who would be left in the world. And he does not pray for them that they would be happy. He doesn't pray for them that they would be comfortable. He doesn't pray for them even that the pressure cooker would be turned down. He doesn't pray that they would have peace. He says, I pray for my people, my disciples, my church, that they might have a full measure of joy. You know, when we think about joy, we oftentimes confuse joy and happiness. And happiness is an emotion for sure. We, something good happens to us and we're happy. Or something bad happens to us and we're not happy. But joy is very different than happiness. Joy does not look at all the external circumstances and kind of fluctuate up and down. Joy says, regardless of what's going on out there, I've got peace inside. And so while the world is a pressure cooker out there, we can still have that joy in our lives. You know, I was thinking a little bit about this. Uh, the imagery that kind of works for me is joy uh, is a whole lot like a thermostat, you know, the thermostat, we've got one set on each wall over here, and you set the thermostat to, I don't know, whatever we set it at this morning. What do we set it at, Jeff? About 68, yeah. And then that just, that's the, that's the, so how many, regardless of how many people come in the room, how often the doors are open, the thermostat is going to regulate the internal temperature, and it's going to say, regardless of what's going on, we're aiming for 68 all the time. That's joy. And it's controlled. But then there's the thermometer. When you came in this morning, we all got to experience the thermometer up close, right? And the thermometer went up to our head, and it, it, it regulates. It shows the highs and the lows, the external in our lives. And so the thermometer, in my mind, for an image is really the image of happiness, but a thermostat is more the image of joy. It's what's going on. It's controlled and it's measured. And Jesus prays for us that we can have joy regardless of the circumstances that are going on. And I would ask you now, how many of you feel that the joy of the Lord in your heart but that might sting a little bit for some of you, I know, because some of you aren't feeling a lot of joy. You're not feeling a lot of peace. But what I want to say to you, if you're not feeling the joy of the Lord, if you're not feeling just kind of blocking out all the noise, all the stress, all the pressures of the world, Jesus has prayed that joy for you. He wants you to have that. And so this morning, maybe one of the most important things you can do is just to say, God, I want that joy. I don't feel that joy. I don't experience that joy. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a disposition. Joy is how we see the world. You know, I think about the brother of Jesus, James, and he reminds us what it's like to, to, to really experience this joy. He begins his letter this way. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, uh, lack, lacking nothing in faith. 
Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it joy. I think that's really interesting that James begins his uh, letter by saying, you know what, when things, when the stresses, when the hardships come along, consider it pure joy. That's the NIV translation uh, that I read to you this morning. Other translations, uh, the ESV says, consider it all joy. The NRSV says, consider it nothing but joy. What James is saying is, you know what? When hard times come along, we ought to see those things with a joyful heart and just experience that gift of joy that God gives to us. And Jesus invites us to experience that joy. Verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, Father, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that to take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified." So Jesus prays for our sanctification. And sanctification or to sanctify is just kind of a a fancy word uh, for make them separate, make them different. Jesus said, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. See, this is where we get this idea that as Christ followers, we are to live in the world, but not to be of the world. We have to live in the world. We have to interface with non-believers, those who do not honor God's word. But we are separate. We are distinct as Christ followers. The word that, that oftentimes gets used is that we are holy. And no, make no mistake about it, holy doesn't necessarily mean perfect. Nobody here perfect today, right? Me neither. But we are holy. And what holy means is that we are separated. We are set aside from the rest of the world. That we are not to live as the world lives. We are not to value as the world values. This is what scripture, what Jesus is praying for us. He says, I'm going to pray my sanctification, my blessing on my church, on my people, that they would be set aside, that we would be different. And as I think about the stresses, the pressure cooker of all that's going on in the world today, we are called to be different We are called to to, to look different, to act different, to behave different, to have a different outlook on life in terms of how we navigate all this. You know, oftentimes I think as as we think about especially politics today, so much of what the world views as as power is truly short-term. It's short-term power. It's power in the here and now. And as Christ followers, we have been given a gift of a different perspective We have been given an eternal perspective. Like the hymn writer said, this world ain't my home. I'm just a passing through. Right? That's our perspective. 
This is why we lit candles this morning. We didn't light candles this morning to say, wow, I sure miss my loved one. Man, I, you know, just get all nostalgic. This is, this is not nostalgia. This is not looking back and remembering and, you know, in kind of a, a warm, sugary way, remembering or thinking about the influence of our loved ones. This is a bold declaration that this world is not the end. That someday, when, it, for those of us who are in Christ, we will get to go to our heavenly home to be with Jesus and to be with our loved ones. That's what this was about this morning and continues to be about. We look at these candles, these, the, these lights, and I think about tens of millions of lights that continue to shine brightly every single day, 24-7. The saints looking down and encouraging us. It reminds me of the passage of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are the, the witnesses, those who give testimony to Jesus and his goodness and his faithfulness and to remind us that this world is not our home. There's something so much better waiting for each one of us. And that's healing and joy and peace like we will never experience in this world. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so uh, clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Here the writer of Hebrews says, for the sake of joy, he's getting ready to go to the cross, who for the sake of joy uh, gets ready to endure the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken the seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what it means to be Christ followers, to experience that joy that this world is not our home. There is something better ahead. And so Jesus prays for us to continue on in this world. You know, I'm reminded that politics and parties have been around a long time. And as we think about being Americans, political parties come and go. Political platforms come and go. Pol politicians come and go. Do we have any Federalists here today? That used to be a really big party in our American system. No Federalists? You know, about 100 years ago, we had a president who was part of the Bull Moose Party. Any Bull Moosers here this morning? No Bull Moosers here this morning? I mean, that was, that was a big party not that long ago. See, our politics come and go. They go in phases, and, and these politicians come and go, and, and these platforms come and go. But as Christ followers, we are called to have that eternal perspective that as we sang about this morning, that the king of kings who never changes, his platform never changes, his teachings, they never change. He is on the throne, and he's invited us to have that kind of heavenly perspective. And so I just want to close by asking, why in the world would we allow any of our political parties, any of our politicians, any of our platforms today cause us fear? 
Fear has no place in the life of a Christian. The teaching Jesus would say over and over to his disciples is, fear not, fear not, fear not. As we continue to go into this political cooker for the next couple days, weeks, months, maybe years, I don't know, I want you to hear the words of Jesus, fear not, fear not, fear not. And it was the saints, those faithful Christians in the early church and the church that did not fear the, the, the Rome of the day. They did not fear the temple of the day. And they said that one of the earliest creeds of the church, we think of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, is like the creed of the day. And long before that creed came together, there was one creed in the church. And it was spoken over and over and over. And it was three words. Jesus is Lord. That was the creed of the church. I mean, church would be so much quicker on Sunday morning if we just said that creed every week, right? Jesus is Lord. And we think, well, that sounds, that sounds reasonable enough. But you, again, you have to remember in the context of the day, when somebody said Jesus is Lord, that was unthinkable. That was treasonous because in their day, only Rome, only Caesar was considered a Lord and a God. And so if someone said Jesus is Lord, they're putting Jesus on par with the Caesars and on par with the gods. So no wonder so many Christians in the early church were crucified and tortured and fed to the lions. Because they lived without fear. They lived without all the fears of the day, and they said, I'm going to keep going because I have a different perspective. I have a perspective of a heavenly kingdom, and my God is on the throne, and he will always be on the throne. And so my prayer for us, is that we would not forget who is on the throne. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of a great political pressure cooker of our day, that you remind us again in your word to have a different perspective. To be reminded, God, that powers come and go, but that your power stands for all eternity. A great reminder, God, that this world is not our home, that you've got a place for each one of us. A great reminder, God, that our loved ones, those saints, are with you. And they are healed. And they are restored. They're filled with joy and happiness. God, teach us to rise above the fears of this day, to trust in you and the joy that you offer each one of us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.